if you want to do something like a through hike, you can, but you just really have to want to. You, you got to want to because that's the only thing that will get you through such a long distance. And same with an ultra. I think you, you have to want to finish because that's the only thing that will keep you going in the middle of the night. That was Lisa Belanger, and this is episode 109 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Lisa Belanger has always loved adventuring in the wilderness, and her free time is dedicated to getting outside to hike, rock climb, camp, and dirt bike. Taking it to the next level, in 2019, she attempted a through-hike of the Pacific Crest Trail, which runs 4,270 kilometers across the U.S. from the border of Mexico to Canada. Partway through, she was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, a complex autoimmune disease requiring insulin injections and constant blood sugar management. This ended her through-hike at that time, but she returned in 2022, starting over at the Mexican border and successfully hiking all the way to Canada in four and a half months. While she still had her trail legs, she figured, why not sign up for a 100-miler and went on to complete the Lost Soul 100-mile ultra, never having run any sort of marathon before. At that time, she expected it to be a -a once-in-a-lifetime thing, but having discovered how amazing the ultra-running community is, she's reconsidering. Lisa works as the Director of Operations at the Rural Development Network, a nonprofit organization that supports the sustainability of rural communities across Canada. She also recently joined the Board of Directors of the Great Divide Trail Association, volunteering her energy to help protect and maintain this incredible long trail that runs more than 1,100 kilometers along the Continental Divide between Alberta and BC. Lisa became an entrepreneur when she launched Flat Out Feast with her husband Colin in 2022 in an attempt to make backcountry adventures more accessible to those with specific dietary needs. Her freeze-dried meals provide more consistent energy for longer while allowing her to keep her blood sugar stable. This allowed her to have the proper nutrition for her thru-hike and her ultra and she hopes many others will take them along on their treks. Without further ado, let's talk to Lisa. Well, Lisa, welcome to the Inspired Souls podcast. How are you this evening? Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to have you on the show. We mentioned when we were interviewing Dean Johnson a few weeks ago that you came across my radar because the Lost Souls Ultra hadn't even been complete for 24 hours when he was messaging me, telling me that we had to have you on the show and that you had a story he really, really wanted to hear. And he wanted us to do the work so that he could hear your story. <laughs> so here we are. We've done a little bit of work. And honestly, it's not work. We're, we're really um, looking forward to enjoying a good um, hour or so with you here to hear um, a little bit more about you. So without further ado, why don't you do that? Why don't you give us a little bit of background on yourself? Okay, well, hopefully it lives up to the hype, I guess. But um, <laughs> my uh, my trail name is Nugget, and I was born and raised in Edmonton. I'm 28 years old, and I work as the director of operations at a nonprofit that's called the Rural Development Network. And then on the side, I'm also an entrepreneur with a small food business making low-carb freeze-dried meals, which I started recently. 
I've always loved adventuring and try and get outdoors like almost every weekend out to the mountains if I can. I met my husband, Colin, nine years ago, and we both love getting outdoors. And we always say we have too many hobbies because we love to try new things and activities, but it's so hard to you know have time to do it all. Um, and then I also recently joined the board of the Great Divide Trail Association, which is a long distance trail uh, that runs along the Great Divide between Alberta and BC. And uh, that association protects and maintains it. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, but yeah, that's a bit about me. Wow. Okay. So you just reminded me, there's so many um, things we're going to talk about in what you just said on the show here tonight. But uh, let's just go for a brief moment to the Great Divide Trail, because that was one thing that I actually hadn't thought to ask you a specific question on. What led you to decide to join the board of directors with the Great Divide Trail? Have you done significant portions of it or? Um, I've done sections of it. Yeah. And it was really sort of like during my Pacific Crest Trail through hike that I came to appreciate even more the amount of work and dedication that's done by largely volunteers that goes into maintaining those really long Mm -hmm. distance trails. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I really wanted to sort of dedicate whatever skills I could and time and energy to um, to helping a group like that and doing it maybe a little bit closer to home in Canada and Alberta has this really unique long distance trail. So I sort of, I just saw the call for board member applications and I was like, ah, you know, I think maybe I have some relevant experience. I'll just throw my name in there. And then, yeah, I was lucky enough that the membership thought I'd be a good fit. So here I am. (laughs) Well, Good for you. That's awesome. I love to hear stories of people giving back to the trail community. So, you know, you gave us a kind of a perfect segue there. Um, We know that you really found ultra running after your experience on the Pacific Crest Trail with an, I would call it an ultra hike or a very long through hike. Tell us what led you to decide to do the Pacific Crest Trail in the first place. How did your interest in long endurance hikes even start? I'm not even really sure, actually. It seemed a little bit random, but I grew up spending a lot of time outside with my family and doing hiking trips and camping and all sorts of things. And I never really thought about it before, but I think in hindsight, I've always been drawn to things that are done over a longer period of time or like a longer distance just for the adventure and the challenge of it. So I've always preferred going for like week long or 10 day hikes rather than like a day hike or an overnighter. And, um, you know, if I'm going to do a road trip, I want to go for like a month rather than a weekend, um, things like that. So in terms of the PCT, I actually, it was my brother, Renee, who met a woman who had through hiked the PCT and he was just telling me about it one day because he was interested in it and that there was this hike that you could, there was this trail that you could hike the entire length of the US. And I just instantly thought like, yes, I am absolutely going to do that one day. That sounds amazing. Um, and it wasn't really because I loved hiking so much that I wanted to hike for five months straight. It was just like the bigger adventure of it and like doing this incredible distance. And I knew that it would be super challenging both physically and mentally, but I'm a really determined person. So I knew that like, if I set my mind to it, that I could probably do it. So that festered for a few years before I actually had the opportunity to do it, but it was always in the back of my mind is like, I'm going to do that one day. (laughs) 
Okay, so for those that may not be familiar with the PCT, can you just describe like where it is and what direction you went? I assume it goes north-south, and so which direction did you hike it? So I went northbound, and it starts, so it, it runs through California, Oregon, and Washington from the border of Mexico all the way to the border of Canada. So it's 2,600 miles. And it runs, it, it, a lot of people mistake it as, and they say Pacific Coast Trail. It doesn't run along the coast. It actually runs along the crest of of the mountain ranges. So it's super, super scenic in that way. And it's just mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. And I was going northbound. Yeah. And you were saying it, it took me a couple of years to, you know, sort of like get myself organized to do it. I would imagine it's quite a, a logistical process to even do this because you're saying it takes four and a half, five months. So that's time off work. That's who's going with you. That's how am I shipping all my my stuff to different points? Like, can you kind of walk us through some of the considerations one has to make to even consider this hike in the first place? Yeah, so definitely. Um, so you have to apply for a permit to do it in November. And they've actually moved it up earlier to, I think, October now. But so you have to apply quite a bit in advance to hopefully get a permit. It's kind of like a lottery. So you just get a spot in line. So that's like your first step to see if whether that's even an option for you that year. Um, So stop. You're telling me there's so many people that want to (laughs) hike 2,600 miles that they have to have a lottery for it. Yeah, yeah. And really, the popularity started since the movie Wild came out, Mm -hmm. which was about that trail. And that if you like, you can look at the numbers of the number of people doing the trail and just shoots up um, the year that movie came out. But but yeah, so you have to apply for a permit. And that's just to help like manage the number of people on the trail and sort of protect it that way. And then hope for the best. And then in terms of planning, it's a lot of research in terms of gear to bring. So that's where I focused most of my time was around the research for gear because you can really prepare that. But the rest of it, because it's such a long distance, you can't really like plan an itinerary or plan it too much because it's just going to instantly go out the window. So it's just sort of planning the gear and being prepared for like what to expect as much as you can. And then, yeah, a lot of people quit their jobs. The first time I went, I did quit my job because I just wasn't sure what I wanted to do when I came back. We had considered renting our house out even because we were going to be away for six months, uh, but we ended up not doing that, thankfully. Uh, But yeah, just like putting everything on hold to go and do this big thing. And it's kind of, it's a lot of prep and yeah, it takes a lot of time. Uh, You say we, did you do it with your partner? Yeah. So in 2019, I started with my husband and my brother actually. Cool. Um, so yeah, let's let's talk about that for a minute. So I know you attempted it in 2019 and didn't finish. What happened and how far did you get? Like, tell us a little bit of the story of of your first attempt. Sure. So so it was 2019. I started with my husband and my brother, and it was incredible. Like we were having such a great time, even though it was really challenging. And like I said, it's so scenic and you start in the desert in Southern California. So the first 700 miles are like super hot. There's no water. (laughs) There's like no shade. And then you hit the mountains in Central California, the Sierras. And then all of a sudden we were 100% snow travel because it was a high snow year that year. You know, our feet would get wet during the day and then our shoes would freeze overnight. So you literally had to open up your laces the night before and like stick a water bottle in your shoe just so that you could get your feet in your shoes the next morning because they'd be frozen solid. (laughs) And then I was like walking with my shoes like undone for probably three hours the next morning before they were warm enough that I could 
actually do my laces up. So it was like, is that something that you learned? Sorry to interrupt. Is this something that you learned on the job or is this something that you had learned in your research that you'd done ahead of time? No, mostly on the job. I mean, that was a pretty like, I don't know if it was record high, but it was quite a high snow year. So it's not usually like that. (laughs) Yeah. So actually that leads me to another question. Like there, there would be, it, it takes a good whatever, four or five months, but there's probably only a specific four to five month period that you would even do this anyway. It's not like people are going and starting this in January ever, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you, the window is basically from end of March to like end of September um, that you have to do it. And it's hard because you have to apply for your permit so early in advance before you know what the snow conditions are going to be that year. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of just at the mercy of the elements at that point. And Somebody said to me actually on the trail, like, you have to thread the needle because if you start too early to avoid the heat in the desert, you're going to have too much snow in the mountains. If you start too late, you're going to, as you get farther north, you might hit snow in Washington before you can get to the border. It's like a complete, and then if you wait too long or you might hit fires, there's a lot of forest fires that happen in in California and Oregon. So you try and time it as best you can, but you really can't predict anything. So there's just a lot that can go wrong. (laughs) So does it get busy then on the trail? If you, if you imagine that all these people are sort of moving through it at the same time, or do some people go from North to South? Some people do go north to south. Um, it's starting to be more common. It wasn't very common before. But it's interesting because you're all all the hikers are like moving forward together. And so you don't actually see a lot of people during the day because you're all moving at about mm. the same pace. So they're around, but you don't see them. And then you might run into people like at camp. There might be a few other tents there or like at a water source or something. But generally, it's not super busy. And then people, like a lot of people don't complete their through hikes. So the people like are dropping off, you know, as you get farther north, there's less and less people left (laughs) that are still there. So yeah, it gets more and more isolated, I guess. Okay. So how far did you get? What happened? Why did you stop? So I was on trail that year for two months, pretty much exactly two months. I had hiked 788 miles, which is 1,270 kilometers and that's just under a third of the trail. And then that's when I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And for people who don't know, type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease where your immune system attacks the cells that produce insulin. So you can't produce it anymore at all. And insulin is a hormone that moves glucose from your bloodstream into your cells to use as energy. So without it, you basically can't absorb energy from your food and your blood sugar goes really high. It won't come down and you're essentially starving to death. So your body starts to eat itself, eats your own muscles as an alternative source of energy, which produces toxins and whatnot. But basically without insulin, you're going to die. So that was me. So I was literally starving to death while I was on this massive hiking adventure and I didn't even know it at the time. But I was just starting to have like an accumulation of symptoms that no one else was having. And these are the typical symptoms of onset of type 1 diabetes, but I didn't know it at the time. So I was really thirsty always. I was losing weight way faster than everybody else. I was peeing really frequently and had to get up three times every night to go pee, which sucks when you're in a tent, first of all, but also sucks when you're camping on snow and it's below zero outside and you have to like get out there. Right. (laughs) But the thing was that all these symptoms had started pretty much the exact same time that I started hiking. So I just thought they were all hiking related because you're 
you'd expect to be more thirsty and then you're drinking a lot of water. So you're going to pee more. And, you know, of course you'd be losing weight because you're exercising. So I wasn't like really worried about it. I was just like, all right, like I'm doing this thing and it's hard and like whatever, but I got to keep doing more, more miles a day. And then my husband was just Googling one day. I'm not even sure what he typed in, but WebMD came up with a list of the symptoms for type one diabetes. And it was exactly basically what I was having. And we kind of dismissed it because obviously the internet's going to come up with the worst case scenario. And I was like, well, that's unlikely. But every week or so we would hitchhike into a town to resupply on food and uh, get a shower and things like that. So I just figured I might as well go into a health clinic while I was there. And honestly, I was just going to ask the doctor, like, how can I gain weight? Because I'm eating as much as I can. And there's like nothing left of me. Like I was so skinny. I could see my bones And I was like, I'm not going to make it to Canada at this rate because I'm not even a third of the way and like there's nothing left of me. So they did some tests and yeah, basically, long story short, they were like, you need to go to the hospital right now. And And this is not a very typical presentation, is it, for type 1? Like often that's diagnosed when you're young and you would have been about 26 or 25? 25, yeah. So actually I realized or I found out later that it's a misconception that it's mostly diagnosed in children. And so that's why they don't call it uh, juvenile diabetes anymore. Um, so I, I mean, I read somewhere that more than half the people with type one are diagnosed as adults, which I didn't even know was possible. I didn't even know what diabetes was at the time, but yeah. So I guess it's not as rare as people think, but for some reason you don't hear about it a lot. You didn't, did you experience any diabetic comas or ketoacidosis at all when you were out there? I was in diabetic ketoacidosis, like when I was diagnosed, but I was just really lucky that I decided to go in that day because if it had, if I had just continued hiking, I essentially would have gone into a coma and I would have been in the backcountry and very possibly could have died, honestly. Like, I don't know what would have happened. Wow. Yeah. So that brought your hike to an end and, and your husband and brother presumably stopped there with you too. And and you all went home. Is that, how how did it go from there? (laughs) My husband did come home with me, but my brother was always planning to be kind of independent from us. He was kind of the third wheel, but, you know, we started together and then we knew that we might not stay together for the whole trail, but he did continue and finished his through hike that year. That's good. Good for him. All right. So that was three years ago and kind of what, what happened in that three-year period? I assume you went home and got some treatment, got on insulin and you know, then the pandemic happened, but why don't you walk us a little bit through, you know, what happened with you with both your diabetes and with your quest for endurance in the next three years? Yeah. So type one diabetes is actually quite complex to manage on a day-to-day basis and takes literally 24 seven effort to manage it. So there was a lot of learning to sort of get it under control. I did a lot of my own research as well. And you know, landed on if I could eat a low carb diet and really just cut out carbs and sugar, that would make it a lot easier to manage those fluctuations in blood sugar while injecting insulin. Um, So I did that and essentially, yeah, went back to work. And I always planned to go back to the PCT, but I couldn't drop everything like I had done right away again, because I had like obligations at work and other things and even finances, you know, saving up again for something like that. So I was just sort of going back to normal life, which was kind of hard and, uh, you know, just planning for the next adventure. Okay. So, you know, you finished that, you didn't completely finish it. You did a third of it in 2019. 
got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. You came back home, got that sorted out. You always wanted to get back and finish what you started, right? So in, you know, the pandemic happens and then 2022 finally happens and you decide to go give it another shot. Talk us through what changed the second time around. Like you had a bit more experience, presumably, this the second time. You didn't need to do all the research you did in the first place, but now you've got type 1 diabetes and you have quite a lot more to consider with your health going into the second attempt. So I don't know if there's a question in there, but can you sort of like fill in some gaps about what was different your second time around? Yeah, so it's funny because in 2019, when we were first starting out, somebody asked me what my biggest fear was for the trail. And for a lot of people, it was bears and lightning storms and like running out of water, things like that. But for me, my biggest fear was getting so badly injured or sick that I would have to get off trail and stop early because I knew that I wasn't going to quit for any reason, except if something literally forced me to stop. And then that's what happened. So the, the worst case scenario basically came true. And so when I went back in 2022, I felt like in some ways invincible because what could possibly be worse than what's already happened to me? So, I mean, it's like, so it can only be uphill from here. So I went into it feeling pretty optimistic and it, it's a, it's a really strange, like powerful feeling for that to have happened. But yeah, I just was really excited. And then the second time I went back, I was solo as well. So that, that was a different experience being by myself on the trail. And then in terms of like logistically with the food and, and diabetes, that added a whole other level to it. So insulin has to actually be refrigerated for the extra supply that's not in use. And there's obviously no refrigerators in the backcountry. So um, I had this whole resupply strategy that I had to reach out to trail angels in Facebook groups and see if there were people along the trail that I could ship insulin to and they could hold it in their fridge for me. Until wow. I got there and every month or so I would get there and sort of resupply from that. And I always had to carry extra in my pack as well. So I had a insulated bottle that I had extra insulin in and I would put snow in there as whenever I could find snow or ice from restaurants just to keep it cold if I could. And so that was kind of interesting. And then on top of that, I had to carry extra weight of all of that, plus like needles and the sensors and all different things. So you know, you try and be really ultralight when you're on such a long hike like that. So it was kind of annoying to have to carry this extra stuff, but it was just like the fact of life and where I was at. So largely my strategy was the same in terms of starting out a little bit slower and, and really working up to bigger mileage days because it's hard to train to hike 40 plus kilometers a day for four to six months straight until you're actually doing it. And so my strategy was to kind of start slow, which was still like 25 kilometers a day, and then train on the way and work up to those bigger days. And it's funny because a common expression for through hiking is it's a marathon, not a sprint. Like don't start <laughs> sprinting out the gate because you have a long ways to go. And as it turns out, it's actually like a hundred mile marathon times 26. So yes, you know, just yes. pace yourself. But um, <laughs> but yeah, after the first couple of months, I was hiking like 40 to 50 kilometers every day pretty consistently. And I think my biggest day was about 60K. But I was able to avoid you know, overuse injuries and some of those common problems by trying to really work up to it. And then also in terms of nutrition. Let's talk about that. So you mentioned that you experimented with different foods, low carb foods before you started your second attempt and started your own business. So tell us a bit more about that. Like, how did you go from exploring what foods work best for you to deciding you needed to start a business? 
And then how did that inform you or improve your experience on the PCT the second time? Um, yeah. So prior to being diagnosed, I was just eating the common hiking food like ramen and candy and sidekicks and like Pop-Tarts, literally anything that was high calorie and like shelf stable. Um, and then after I was diagnosed and I had to adopt a low carb diet between my two through hiking attempts, I was doing some hikes just around here in Alberta. And for, I went out on like a week hike and the only really low carb thing I could pack was like cheese and pepperoni. And I packed out an insane amount of cheese and after day two got like tired of it. There's only so much you can cheese you can eat like straight off the block. It was Mm -hmm. insane. And I was like, this is not sustainable. Like food is really becoming a barrier for me to do these extended backcountry trips that I want to do. And I assume that other people are having the same problem because there was no low carb shelf stable food or like dehydrated or freeze dried meals that existed on the market in Canada. And I looked. (laughs) And so I was like, well, I knew that I was going to I was planning to go back to do the PCT again, and it was going to be a huge problem for me to find food that I could eat. So I was like, I'm going to have to make my own. And then I started looking into getting freeze dryer and stuff like that. And it's quite expensive to do that. So then I thought, well, realistically, I'm sure other people are also looking for this. And so if I can create it and sort of solve that problem for not just myself, but also other people and make essentially make the backcountry more accessible for people with this specific dietary need. Like that was really the mission behind mm-hmm. it. And so mm-hmm. I just went, went for it and yeah. And, and it really helped me. So that's what I ate the whole PCT in 2022. I ate these, this, like it's called flat out feasts <laughs> and they really are feasts. They're so good. And they're made with tons of meat and vegetables and cheese. They're super high calorie, but also being way more nutritious than other stuff that, that you would get like ramen and stuff. So that kept me going, I think a lot better this time because I just didn't get hungry throughout the day as much because I was eating real food. Protein gives you actually a longer and more consistent energy compared to carbs that really sort of spike and drop yeah. and then you're hungry again right away. So so even people that don't really care about eating low carb specifically, they still love the meals just because of that aspect. You have more consistent energy, you're getting way more protein, and it just makes more sense for these like backcountry trips. Well, and I imagine it like, I know you've now done you know, only one ultra uh, 100 mile race <laughs> times 26. But in, in these kind of races, we get so sick of, of constant sugar that all you want after one of these events is savory, salty food. You just can't handle gels and donuts and sugar anymore. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine what that would be like after four months or five months of constantly eating <laughs> cakes and cookies and ramen noodles. I'm sure everybody's craving some savory, good, nutritious protein along the way. So describe these meals though to us. Is it something that you have to like heat up water and add it or or, like what's the consistency? So they are freeze-dried in a pouch. So they're shelf stable because all the moisture has been removed from the food. And then you boil hot water, you put like about a cup of hot water right in the bag, stir it, seal it up, wait five minutes, and it's like a home-cooked meal in a bag. Nice. And I would have to imagine that this is very compatible with through hiking, like long 
efforts at a very low intensity, right? Like that's where we're relying more on our body fat to sustain us anyway, as compared to the, the, you know, roadrunner that's like trying to perform at, at a very high intensity for a shorter time. So did you find that you became a little bit more fat adapted through this whole process of being diagnosed with type one diabetes, being more maybe in tune with where's my blood sugar at right now. And, and just sort of talk to us about, um, I guess the sustainability, because as you say, some of the carb stuff, it, it burns really hot and then you're hungry half an hour later, right? Do you find with these meals that it actually fuels you for quite a bit longer? Yeah, absolutely. Um, because the protein takes so much longer to digest, not only does that kind of give you that slower release of energy over a longer period of time, but also in terms of your blood sugar, your blood sugar and insulin levels aren't spiking. Like as a non-diabetic person, your insulin and blood sugar does still spike if you eat a bunch of carbs and sugar at once. So, um, and then it will drop. Whereas with low carb food, because the protein digests so much slower, I don't need to take as much insulin for that protein because I'm not going to get a huge spike in my blood sugar. And so that helps not only just prevent those spikes, but also prevent the lows that come after that. Because if you have to take a large dose of insulin and it's an imperfect art, I mean, I'm injecting it and it's just impossible to do the job of one of your essential organs perfectly. Um, So the, the lower doses of insulin that I can take by avoiding eating those high carb meals, then the less insulin is in my system. And especially when I'm um, exercising and you become more sensitive to insulin, which can cause you to go lower even faster. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, So it just all around is like, it's a much better solution and just allowed me to have stable blood sugars throughout the day. And it still wasn't perfect, obviously, but um, much, much better and more manageable, even on the trail and off trail. Yeah. Okay. I have, oh my goodness, so many questions. But I'm curious, did you explore using a pump at all? An insulin pump? I, I did explore it. Um, but the thing with the insulin pumps, I think a lot of people have the impression that it's sort of like an automatic thing. You just plug it in and you get, that's your pancreas now. But it's really not. And so you're still having to do a lot of the management. And then on top of that, especially with through hiking, there's a lot of supplies that comes with having a pump. You have to change the injection site like every three days. Oh, okay. Um, I was thinking it would be less, less supplies, but yeah, it's more. Yeah. It's a lot of bulk. And then also just because it's now a machine, it's slightly less reliable than right. just injecting it myself. Like I control it and there's going to be no malfunctions or like kinks in the line mm-hmm. that might that might mess it up. So for me, it was just, I have never tried a pump. I think it's, it definitely, some people really swear by it. Um, but for where I was at, I was having great success just injecting it. And so I just continued with that and it was a much simpler, more reliable system for me. Was there any part of you that was more worried about this second attempt specifically because you were solo? Like if you did get into any kind of medical emergency and you're by yourself, like did that worry you was that weighing or your husband on your mind? how did mm-hmm. he feel <laughs> yeah for sure I mean it, it definitely is an aspect like an added security risk in a way but in the three years between my attempts I just I did spend a lot of time trying to perfect the routine I guess and mm-hmm. and really understanding like how my body reacts to certain types of exercise and certain types of food um, and then also just 
on that low carb diet, taking less insulin, that just helped reduce the risk as well. So it still was a consideration, but I think I just felt capable of dealing with the potential low blood sugars before they became a problem. And I did carry like an emergency nose spray that's glucagon that would like release sugar into your make your liver dump sugar basically into your body. But the problem was if I, unless I was hiking with somebody else for a significant period of time and they knew how to use it, like it was not necessarily a good safety measure if nobody knew what to do with it. So I think it's really just more about being aware of what's going on and trying to prevent those problems. And you you can't really be afraid forever. You just got to do it anyway. True. (laughs) Well, you read my mind. I'm sitting here literally thinking she is so brave, like, wow. But bravery, this is the quote that I've actually been using over the last few months is not the absence of fear. It's deciding that something else is more important. Mm -hmm. And more important to you was, sounds like taking control and saying, I'm not going to let this take the joy away from me of doing the activities that I love. And how, how can I make that happen? Um, Before we leave the PCT topic and move a little bit more into Lost Souls Ultra, I wanted to ask you if, you know, if you have any favorite memories or special moments you'd like to share with us uh, from your journey uh, from Mexico to Canada. It's so hard to pick specific moments because it was so long. And so I was on trail for 136 days and was on, I only took nine days off where I had zero days in that whole time. So it's a lot. And it's kind of like an all encompassing experience where like you can only really appreciate the good times because you had really hard times as well. And so you don't really think of them as like bad and good moments. It's just one big experience. But if I start from like South to North, it's, it starts in Southern California in the desert, like I said, and it's hot and it's dry, but it also means that there's no bugs. And so I was able to cowboy camp a lot which is just a camp without a tent. So I would just throw my sleeping pad and sleeping bag down and you get to fall asleep, like looking at the stars, which was really, really Mm. cool. And then it gets into the Sierra Nevada and central California, which is probably the most beautiful area I have ever seen. There's just such huge mountains, beautiful, clear blue lakes and waterfalls everywhere. And this time, this time around, it was a low snow year. So I had mostly dirt trail, which was great. Nice. Um, and my husband actually came down and hiked this section with me, which was awesome because we didn't get a chance to do it in 2019. And that's like arguably the most beautiful section of the trail. So that was really special. And then in Northern California, I hiked quite a bit by myself and through a lot of past burn areas from, from forest fires. And so the trees would be still standing, but they were pitch black. And then there, the whole earth was just ash and rock. There was not a single green thing in sight. And it was so strange and kind of sad to hike through it and see that the forest had been so devastated, but also kind of interesting because you wouldn't normally go to a burn area and like hike in it. <laughs> so, <Right. laughs> um, so that was really just kind of interesting to see. Um, and then I hit Oregon and I met another solo hiker that I teamed up with for about the last month or so of my hike. And her trail name is Giggles. And we decided to do the Oregon challenge, which is to hike the entire state of Oregon in 14 days. So you, I mean, there's no one tracking you. It's just like a self-imposed challenge that we do for fun because hiking 2,600 miles is not hard enough. (laughs) So you have to average 52 kilometers a day for two weeks to do it in that time span. And it was just like a whirlwind of an experience where I would get up at 6 a.m. or actually I'd be hiking by 6 a.m. already packed up 
do like 25 to 30 kilometers before lunch pretty much without stopping because I just didn't have time and then stop for an hour to have lunch, hike another 25 to 30 kilometers before 9 p.m., hopefully just before the sun sets. And and then we still have to do like side trips into towns to get food now and then. So sometimes we'd be night hiking to get the miles in. But we did it and it was just kind of an awesome experience and to see what you can accomplish if you just like pick a goal and put your mind on it. So that was really neat. And then and then I hit Washington, which is the last state, and you kind of feel like you're getting closer to the finish line, even though you still have like 500 miles to go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I knew that I was going to – I mean, I was looking forward to not having to hike every day and get up and walk, but I knew that I was going to miss the trail once it was over as well, so it was kind of bittersweet. And there were definitely moments where I'd be hiking at sunset along a ridge on, you know, the top of the mountains and the sky would be pink and orange and purples and you, there'd be no wind. So you could hear the birds chirping and like pikas in the distance. And you just kind of stand there and get like such a deep appreciation for where you are and how beautiful the world is and try and like ingrain that memory in your soul so you can keep it forever. And I think you can get experiences like that when you're even on a day hike, but it's so much more intense when you've been out there for months and you feel like that's your home and like Mm -hmm. you don't belong anywhere else. So those moments were like really neat. Um, And then along the whole trail, there's also a really big community that surrounds it. Um, There's hikers from around the world that come to to hike the PCT. And so you sort of have an instant connection with people and you become really fast friends with them because you, I guess you have the same type of crazy that brought you there in the first place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But also off trail, there's trail angels that live in the towns uh, around the trail that offer support in various ways. We call it trail magic. So sometimes you'll come across like a cooler full of ice cold drinks and snacks and maybe some fresh fruit along a road crossing and it would just be the highlight of your week. Wow. Um, so stuff oh, like that was really amazing. neat as well. And one time I got a trail angel that, you know, welcomed me and two other hikers into her home as complete strangers. She picked us up at the trailhead fed us, let us shower. She had beds for us and we had like a kitchen party and and had snacks and just shared stories like all through the night. And it was just so special to have that instant connection with people that surrounds the trail and that community. And I think that's a really special part of the trail as well. Mm, For sure. Now you've mentioned a couple of times your trail name, and I'm sensing that there's a little bit of a story behind these trail names, because then you said that woman that you met uh, had a trail name as well. So tell us a little bit more about the trail names and how you uh, wound up with the name Nugget. Yeah, so trail names, I'm not sure if that's a thing in running. Are trail names a thing? No, it's more a through hike thing. Yeah. (laughs) So trail names, I guess they're a through hike Thing and you get given a trail name usually by other people that you meet along the trail. And it's usually just something silly that happened or something that maybe defines you and has a funny story. And really, most people, I never knew their real name. We just go by trail names. Um, it also makes it easier to identify people because there could be like 10 different marks on the trail. There's only going to be one Giggles and, you know, one Nugget <laughs> or MacGyver or like Dirty Ziploc and all these yeah. random things. So um, it's like, a, it's like a um, call sign for pilots. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, for me, so in the desert, there is 
a McDonald's on the trail. And it's a really iconic spot just because it's hilarious that the trail basically goes right by this McDonald's and you can go in and of course hikers just love to, <laughs> to, to get all the McDonald's food. So the, unfortunately McDonald's doesn't do lettuce wrap burgers or any sort of like low carb thing. So chicken nuggets is kind of the closest thing for me. And I just love chicken nuggets. So I ended up ordering a lot of chicken nuggets and uh yeah that's really just where the the name came from that's fun awesome so you ended up finishing the pct on august 22nd and it wasn't too you said you had decided to sign up for lost soul ultra while you were on the hike is that correct but yeah correct me if i'm wrong you didn't have a desire necessarily to do ultra marathons before this so what led you to wanting to Sign up for your first ultra at the end of this humongously long hike and tell us a little bit about that experience and whether you do it again. So I definitely did not know what I was getting into. Um, so the post-trail blues are quite common. It can be really hard to adjust back to like normal life in air quotes, going from a through hike and being in the wilderness for that long to sitting at a desk job. And so it is a, it can be a huge challenge for some people and some people do experience depression from that. So one of the things you can do to combat that is to have something else to look forward to or some sort of project that you can dive into when you get home just to sort of ease that transition. So that was one of the reasons that I started to look at marathons was just because I didn't want the adventure to be over and I wanted something else exciting to sign up for. So I was just kind of looking at different options and I was like, oh, maybe, maybe a marathon. And then the other reason was that I am not a runner. <laughs> and I mean, I said earlier that I have too many outdoor hobbies, but running was not one of them. I had literally never gone out my front door and gone for a run ever in my life. And I just, I wasn't sure that that was something that I would enjoy because I'd never tried it and had so many other, you know, activities I like to do. It just wasn't part of my routine. But after hiking for that long, I was in the best shape of my life, or at least, at least my legs were. And I thought if I'm ever going to try a marathon, like now is the time. So then I don't have to train for it. I don't have to discover whether I like running or not. I'll just kind of like go for it and see how it goes. So I started looking about looking at that, but after hiking like 40 to 50 or more kilometers a day, the distances of marathons just seemed a little bit like small peanuts. And so then I, <laughs> so then I kind of did some digging and I discovered ultra running and I was like, Oh, that's neat. I never knew that that existed and that there's these really long marathons. And then I came across a hundred miler and I was like, Hmm, I could probably do that. Like, I think I could get the hit I need from a hundred miler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I also didn't know how long I could actually run for before getting out of breath because like hiking is not really the same as running. So I was looking for something that was more endurance focused and longer because then the strength that I'd built up would be more aligned with that compared Absolutely. to running a short marathon. So yeah, I figured if I could walk 2,600 miles, I could probably hike slash jog 100. And uh, so I literally one day had a tiny bit of cell service. I was on the top of a mountain, like walking around with my phone in the air, trying to like catch the cell signal. And this is what I was doing. I was Googling like, what am I going to do? And that very day was actually the last, it was the deadline to register for the Lost Soul Ultra. And I was just looking up ultra marathons happening in Alberta and as soon as possible after I expected to be done hiking so that I wouldn't lose my trail legs in between. 
And that was the deadline to register. So I was like, all right. And I just filled out the form, hit register, and was like, I'll figure it out later because I still <laughs> had to finish the hike. And for the next couple of weeks, as I was finishing the through hike, I didn't have any cell service, basically. So I couldn't research things to prepare. So I just had no idea like what I'd signed up for. And luckily I had met a day hiker whose wife had done 100 mile ultras. And so I just started quizzing him about, you know, what to expect and like how do aid stations work and what kind of running vest should I wear and like, what should I eat? And then I also met another woman named Becky Rogers who happened to be an ultra running coach in the, in the U S and she was actually on she was doing an FKT unsupported attempt of the Washington PCT trail section and she just happened to like stop for a break while I was having lunch and how convenient yeah it's how convenient I was like oh you got any tips for me and so she gave me a few tips and I was just slowly kind of building up my arsenal of information and then once I finished my through hike I had just over two weeks to prepare or three weeks and I finally got to download the racer info package and read it. And I didn't even get a chance to go home between my hike and the, the ultra because I spent some extra time in Washington uh, with my husband after finishing the trail. So I literally just had whatever hiking gear that I had. And my expectation was that it was just going to be a really long day of a through hike. Did you get what you expected? Like, was it, was it what you expected? <laughs> No, it was not. It was not at all what I <laughs> expected. Tell us so, about that. I mean, I thought it was going to go relatively smoothly because I knew I had a very good sense of like how long that distance was. And I knew that normally that would take me I, maybe like three and a half days of hiking to do, but with a backpack. And I figured I can probably just condense that in, was it two days, a day and a half and be okay. But it was way harder than I expected. Like kudos to anyone that does hundred milers. Cause it was crazy hard. I think because I had never really run before my hip flexors were not prepared even for jogging because I think you like extend them more when you run compared to hiking. So I started getting pain in my hip flexors probably at mile 20 of the marathon. And that became quite intense and probably contributed to like my mental exhaustion as well throughout the whole thing. I did not expect how completely dead I was going to be. It was just such an intense experience that I could never have imagined how difficult it was going to be. And there was at least three times I thought for sure I wasn't going to make it. And then somehow just kept going, I guess. But Well, this is really funny because I was just actually talking about this with somebody today, like somebody that I, I know and we run about the same. And so like no big deal for us to run like 50 miles a week or, or whatever. No problem. But if I go to the mall and walk around with my daughter for like two hours, I'm exhausted. So I'm like running and walking are not the same thing at all. And it's very much like the specificity of training, right? So I can see why you know, you try to run 20 miles uh, and and your hip flexors are like, what are you doing to me? Like, we're not used to this yet. So I'm curious if you were feeling that way at 20 miles and you still have to get to 100, how? How did you manage that last 80 miles of the race if you were already sort of physically and mentally in a bit of a hole? Um, In short, pickle juice and Tylenol. (laughs) (laughs) pretty much the real answer is just just like pushing through it I guess um 
I really wanted to finish. And I think you, yeah. that just kept push, pushing me to kept going, to keep going. Um, it was a mess really. I cried a lot. I cried like for most of the second and third lap, but, but just sort of was like, okay, I'm doing it. I got to keep going. <laughs> well, you know, you had a lot of practice four to five months of, of training the, the grit machine within your body, you know, and that ability to keep going, even when you're significantly uncomfortable. Um, I'm curious, you know, even though you did really long days, like you had some, what, like 16 hour days out there mm -hmm. on the PCT, you at least got sleep every, every night. So how did the going through that night affect you? And were you surprised by how you felt the next morning or, you know, was it entering all new territory or I'm just wondering how you felt with the sleep deprivation part of a hundred miler? It, I was definitely tired, but I had done some night hiking on the trail. So I was oh, okay. familiar with hiking alone at night and, you know, the, I guess being tired and everything that comes with that, but I hadn't done like a full overnighter. So it was just kind of that times a hundred in terms of, um, mental exhaustion and things like that. But yeah, I just, I tried not to start on caffeine too early so that I wouldn't crash from the caffeine too early. So I ended up not starting caffeine till like 3am. I probably could have started it much earlier, but I misjudged how far I was from the next aid station. Uh... Um, but I don't know. I've, I, I guess I do okay with sleep deprivation and it was just, just a matter of keeping going. And I think it helped that I had already hiked at night. Uh, there were actually quite a few things that I found did transfer over from through hiking mm. to the ultra. So especially around like nutrition and hydration, people had told me to expect like gastrointestinal issues or vomiting and because you're doing something so intense, but I didn't have any of that. And I think it's because on while I was hiking, I got used to really like scheduling my water intake because you don't want to carry more than you need. And you also don't want to run out. So I would pretty much carry like a liter for five miles and I would make sure that I would drink it. Otherwise I was just carrying it for nothing. And so sort of that like strict regimen of like making sure I am drinking water and I knew how much my body would need based on like how hard I was working and same with nutrition, just making sure that I was consistently eating. And I'd already sort of like trained my brain to to do that. Um, and then I was able to just eat pretty much exactly what I ate during my through hike, which helped with especially my blood sugar and keeping it more predictable because I knew exactly what I was going to eat, which was nothing from the aid stations. I was shocked that the aid stations is like pure sugar. I don't yep, know how yep. you guys it's do <laughs> I, it is that. shocking. It's like all the things you would never eat during, well, you probably shouldn't eat regularly during a normal day is what we have at the aid stations. And yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it looked super fun. I wish I could have eat some, eaten some of it, but I was basically just eating like low carb bars and I had made my own goo, which was my breakfast from the trail, which was like a chia seed pudding with peanut butter powder and hemp hearts and things like that. So oh, that super high delicious. calorie. It's actually good. Yeah. So, so that kind of transferred over from through hiking. And then also just the pace. I basically just did the math on, I have 33 hours and I have hundred miles. I, I need to average three and a half miles an hour to finish before the cutoff. And that was really my goal. And I knew that I could hike at three or three and a half miles an hour with a backpack. So I knew like how fast I was walking and how much I could push myself and like how much I would need to catch up if I was going slow up a hill and I maybe need to jog a little bit. So that really helped. 
Um, and my feet were in great shape. I didn't have any blisters. They didn't even hurt by the end of the hundred miles, which I was surprised. Oh my goodness. Don't <laughs> say that too loud. That's awesome. I, I mean, my hip flexors <laughs> were a different story, but my feet were great. <laughs> so, yeah, so that well, was good. it sounds like, you know, a lot of the kind of rookie mistakes that we hear oh. from people in their ultra marathons did not impact you. Uh, so that's amazing. And, and you've talked a little bit about some lows, um, some tears and pain and exhaustion, but, uh, I'm wondering, would you ever, was that like a one and done or would you ever consider doing something like this again? I originally thought this was like a once in a lifetime thing. That's why I signed up for it right after my hike. But I was really shocked by how much I enjoyed it after the fact. Definitely maybe not during, but just looking back, I, I it was such an amazing experience. And not only the ultra itself, but just like the community around it, I was really not expecting. I hadn't even like thought about it, but everybody was so supportive and encouraging. It was like a very non-competitive atmosphere and it really just felt like everybody was competing with themselves. They just wanted to take on this challenge and we were sort of all doing it together. And that was super cool. How did that compare to the kind of community feel that you found running into some of the other hikers on the PCT? I think that the community on the PCT is quite great as well. I mean, everyone's super encouraging and doing their own thing. And they're sort of, you know, you, you maybe hike with people for a while because your paces are lining up and then maybe somebody wants to spend an extra day in a town and you kind of keep going. So it's quite casual um, and supportive overall. But I just felt like at the ultra, it was, I felt like it was a super condensed through hike. Like you're doing this big, long walk, but all at once. And so yeah. everything's just a lot more intense. And I didn't expect like people would be passing me and being like, great climbing. Or if I would pass them and they'd be like, good job. And I was just like, where is this coming from? <laughs> <laughs> it was so cool though. And so anyway, long story short, I think I would like to do uh, more ultras. But my problem is that I went from literally zero to a hundred and now I don't, I am not a runner. Like I need to actually train for these things. And I don't know how, like I've never. Well, there's always the 200, the Moab 240, the 200. You would be, oh my goodness. You would be very well suited for those types of races. I would think. I mean, it's always it, with any run, the faster you can get it done, the the less time you're out there, the less you yeah. suffer. So a little bit of running helps. But yeah, I, I mean, the reality is there's a lot of hiking in, in anything hundred miles and up for sure, as you discovered. So in all of the time that you spent there out on the PCT and the hours that you spent at Lost Souls, and maybe just in, in your endurance journey in general, who has inspired you the most and why? Um, probably, I definitely have to say my brother, his name is Renee. And so he finished the Pacific Crest Trail in 2019 when we had started it together. And so when I was back on the trail, you know, I had that in the back of my mind, like he could do it. So I could probably do it. Um, and he just does like so many crazy adventures without even realizing it. And he'll be telling me about it. And I'm like, what? But I just love that he's up for anything. And I have to tell the story of him at the Lost Soul Ultra because him and my dad were my crew for the the ultra. And they had never crewed before or been to a marathon either. And I actually hadn't planned on having a pacer just because I didn't know anyone that ran that could pace me. And I was just like, whatever, I'll wing it by myself. But as the night went on and I was 
kind of struggling and kind of in rough shape because I was in so much pain. And this was before the Tylenol. And one of the the volunteers at the aid station kind of suggested to them, like, it'd be helpful if somebody could pace me. And they didn't really know that that was an option. And so my brother, it was 3 a.m. And he was like, Okay. And so he was literally wearing jeans and a hoodie. I saw him on the trail. I was pacing somebody else. I was pacing Heidi and I saw him coming back, not dressed to run. No. Okay. Sorry. Keep going. (laughs) So yeah, he was literally in jeans and a hoodie. He had a Gatorade bottle in one hand, a flashlight in the other hand. He stuck a pacer bib in his pocket and he came backwards on the trail to, to meet up with me. And he ended up pacing me for at least 26 miles in different sections throughout the last two laps and just really helped me, you know, keep going and keep me awake. And he did his own marathon that day, completely unprepared, but that's just how amazing he is as a brother. And he just gave it 110% because he believed that I could finish and he really wanted to help me get across the finish line. So um, I think he's hilarious and, Mm. and a huge inspiration. And then also my husband as well has been a huge supporter. And even though he didn't come with me on my second through hike attempt, he was mailing me my resupply packages from home and sort of holding down the fort while I was away. And when I registered for the Lost Soul Ultra, I didn't have cell service after that for a while. And he just saw the email confirmation come in. And, oh, and so finally, awesome. when I got back to cell service and we could chat and he was like, so did you sign up for a marathon? And I was like, yeah, about that. And, but it's he actually thought four I, of them back to back. Yeah, But he thought I would totally crush it. And he always says he doesn't want to be the, the one to hold me back ever. And he's just always so encouraging. So that inspires me to keep going and to keep trying big things. So yeah, definitely those two people. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Oh, that is. It's amazing to have that kind of support. Ah, very, very cool. So we usually close every episode with just five really quick rapid fire questions. So first question is, do you have a favorite mantra? I'm actually really curious to hear your uh, answer on this one, considering you've spent a lot of time in your own head <laughs> getting oh. through some of these things. Yeah. I, I mean, it's actually quite simple. It's just you got to want to. It's just simple because you, if you want to do a through hike, you don't need to start as an athlete. I didn't train for it. You don't need to be young. There's people out there that are in their eighties, you know, doing a full through hike. There's that, there was a family doing it with three kids under the age of five years old. Um, and so really like if you want to do something like a through hike, you can, but you just really have to want to, you, you got to want to, because that's the only thing that will get you through that such a long distance. Um, and same with an ultra. I think you, you have to want to finish because that's the only thing that will keep you going in the middle of the night is that like having that goal in your mind. So I guess that's, it's a really simple, but you got to want it. I love it. It's so true. Do you have a favorite place you like to run or sorry, hike? Let's say hike. Yeah, I was going to say, well, well, so far, Lost Soul Ultra is <laughs> one and only run, so that's my favorite. But um, I think my favorite part of the through hike was the Sierra Nevada in California, um, which is coincidentally where the Western States 100-miler is held, which I didn't know at the time. Yes. So kind of neat. But at home, I love to hike anywhere in the Rockies, especially around Abraham Lake and Nordic area, just because it's less traveled and it's actually so beautiful. And if you've never been there in the fall, highly recommend because the colors mm. are incredible. Okay. Do you have a hike on your bucket list? Um, 
I, I think my, if I were to do a through hike again, I would probably do the great divide trail, which I mentioned. Um, that one's about 1100 kilometers in between Alberta and BC. So I think that would be really cool. And it's known as like the wildest through hike because a lot of it doesn't even have a trail right now there. It's still being built, but it's like really, really rugged and really wild. So I think that would be cool. And then in terms of ultras, I think I, maybe I'll do more, but, um, so I, it's funny cause you mentioned the Moab like 240. I was, I was like, yeah, I mean, if I'm gonna, I feel like I can't do anything less than hundred miles now. I'm like stuck, <laughs> <laughs> stuck up there. I might as well just go up from there to like a 240 and see how that goes. <laughs> so Kim, I should probably save my spiel about doing a track race. <laughs> yeah. Maybe for another you day. You should try a 1500. <laughs> Well, and that's the beauty of our sport, right? Is really there's something for anyone. There's multi-day staged ultras. There's go for a week straight and see how long it takes you to get to a hundred thousand miles. You know, like there's, there's so many different ways you can reinvent yourself and find something that suits where you are at this point in your life and what you're searching for. So, okay. Do you have a favorite hiking book or movie? Endurance. Let's say endurance book or movie. So actually, I am currently reading Man on the Run by Mark Timmons, mm. yeah. <laughs> which, which I Former which I got guest of the, the podcast. Exactly. And I actually am really enjoying it. I don't think I've really read that many books specifically about uh, hiking or running, but I really like his idea of we don't need to be exceptional to experience exceptional things or like we're ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Um, I just definitely relate to that. And I've, I've enjoyed reading his stories about his ultras around the world. Okay. Final question. Do you have a favorite post hike indulgence? Definitely sugar-free ice cream and strawberries. Pretty much any time I'd hit a town, I would go straight for the pint of ice cream and buy a bunch of strawberries and just sit outside the grocery store and eat that. (laughs) Sounds delicious. All right. Before we end today, is there anything you would like to leave our listeners with? Any final thoughts? Um, I think one thing that I found interesting on my through hike and I guess in general was that every time I pushed myself to do even more miles in a day, then anything less than that became easier or at least seemed easier. So after hiking 60 kilometers in a day, even 40 kilometers seems like a breeze in comparison, but that's actually still a significant distance. And so I guess just make sure that you push your limits sometimes because that really raises your own personal bar and your confidence and your abilities and makes anything less just seem a little bit easier. You're capable than a lot more of a lot more than you think. And I think it's mostly related to your mindset. And so if you can focus and accept discomfort as part of an experience and be determined to do something, then you really can do it. And then also, if you want to go from zero to a hundred in five months, like I did, I highly recommend a through hike. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Okay. Well, is there anywhere that you can point us to if we want to learn more about you or learn more about Flat Out Feast? Because really, I truly think a lot of people will be interested in this, not just people with type 1 diabetes, but people that want different options as far as fueling themselves on some of these longer events. And um, it just sounds like very delicious, clean, sustainable food. So where can we purchase this online? Yes, our website is flatoutfeasts.ca 
And actually, it's a you can double down because I all the meals are on there. But I also have an adventure blog where I was doing daily journals of my PCT hike, and I did a whole um, race report of the the hundred mile ultra. So you can check those out as well if you're there and if you're interested in kind of more of the nitty gritty of the through hike and what that was like. Um, but yeah, flat out feasts. .ca and I'll, I'll maybe I should explain the name. I mean, you know, when you're out on a hike, especially, and you just get really hungry and and you you know you've been working all day and you just feel like I can't wait for dinner time and I'm gonna feast on all this food that that I have. And so that's really the idea behind the feast is you can sit down and and have this like awesome delicious meal while you're out there. But at the same time, it keeps your blood sugar flat out first of all because there's uh-huh. lower carbs and so the line in our there's like a squiggly line in, in our logo which is actually my continuous blood uh blood sugar monitor and so it keeps you going going flat out keeps your blood sugar flat out and gives you a feast altogether. so definitely hope people check it out because it's a passion project of mine and it's it's literally my husband and I that are cooking these meals and freeze drying them ourselves, packaging them and, and just hoping to get them out there to people to enjoy. Well, that's very interesting and inspiring. You have been a pleasure to talk to. Thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. Dean was right. You had some great ones to tell and I'm sure many others will enjoy them as well. So thanks for coming on the podcast tonight. Thanks so much for having me.